Welcome back to Stars Like Us. I am your host, Eliza Kelly, and I am so delighted to be sitting here today with the author of Waking the Witch, Reflections on of Women, Magic, and Power, and the host of the Witch Wave podcast, the incredible Pam Grossman. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> Thank you. So I, I feel, one, I feel like we don't not look alike. Agree. We definitely have some, I don't know, genetic something yes, going on. Yes, so we're sisters. Okay. All right. <laughs> Let's go there. I'm just going to go straight for it. But we also, you felt like we've met before, maybe in a past life, and especially because we kind of look similar. <laughs> I feel like this, it's like, maybe it's like, yes, of course, you are twins. Yeah, familiarity. <laughs> so I'm going to be feeling. curious. It is very nice. I'm going to be very curious to sort of see where those points could have intersected. Um, the way that I always start stars like us is by sort of just giving you the mic and catching us up to this very moment in time where you are an author of this amazing book that I'm calling a bestseller because it seems to be a best fucking seller. Uh, you're in the New York Times. You are in publications. You, you have all of this amazing press. You wrote, um, You not only were you featured, but you wrote a piece for the Times, which is extremely impressive. And yeah, how did you get to this moment where you are today? Thank you so much. Um, let's manifest the book being in a bestseller. It's definitely it's done. <laughs> it's definitely so it be. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's reaching people, which is amazing. It has not technically, I think, become a New York Times bestseller or anything like that. But, but it, there's been a few features in the Times. Yeah, it, it, it's it's been wonderful. And I'm really, really grateful to them and grateful that there's a lot of great energy around the book. Um, but as I was saying to you off mic, I don't think it's just about me. I think think that people are so hungry for reading about witchcraft in ways that affirm and validate what they're already interested in. Because for so long, witchcraft has been associated with either, you know, things that are trivial and fluffy and silly, or things that are sensational and diabolical mm -hmm. and evil. And I say this a lot, but I think it merits repeating. I think most things that are valuable to a primarily female audience tend to be either trivialized or sensationalized. Absolutely. I was actually just having this conversation um, on when I was making a guest appearance on someone else's podcast recently, which was why are horoscopes and astrology being given so much um, publicity and so much, uh, I guess, collective consciousness attention right now. And, and what I had said back was that we've always had horoscopes in magazines. Every single magazine has always had horoscopes, but they've just been pushed into the margins or the back pages because it's been reduced to a women's issue. And women's issues have always been trivialized. And if, you know, even though they know that women want the horoscopes, they'll just put it in this tiny section in the back because we're not going to give that too much attention. But now that we have actually, we're, we're sort of changing the way that we understand the things that we care about, um, we're starting to give it more space to actually come to light. Exactly. And it's so exciting. I do feel like giving the caveat that, of course, people of all genders can be witches or are attracted to alternative spirituality. But let's be honest, the majority of my listeners and my readers do identify somewhere along the feminine spectrum. And I imagine the same is true for you and That's your right, readers yeah. and listeners. And so... 
um, the thing that has become very illuminating for me is to trace the fact that people's interest in witchcraft has actually mapped very clearly against every wave of feminism. So right now they say we're in the fourth wave of feminism. But if you look at all of the other waves, there was a renewed interest in witchcraft then too, um, tracing back to the 19th century when women were first trying to get the vote. Right, and the suffragette exactly. movement. Exactly. Yeah. And this was around the time, A, of the spiritualist movement, which, let's be honest, most mediums back then, and this is true today, are female. It was one of the first jobs you could really have as a woman speaking in public. Although, of course, it was the spirit speaking through you and not you speaking <laughs> for yourself, because how dare you yeah, speak for yeah. yourself? in public back then but also we had writers in the 19th century like a suffragette and abolitionist named Matilda Jocelyn Gage who used the iconography of the witch to symbolize a woman who was maligned misunderstood and a threat to the patriarchy um, but also had immense power and gifts and so we've seen this archetype of the witch be reframed and reclaimed and renewed with the second wave feminist movement the third wave when I was growing up like in the in the 90s around then if you think about um, like the Anita Hill hearing that was going on right. when I was growing up and the riot girl movement mm -hmm. how that was happening at roughly the same time that there was this renewed interest in Wicca and and movies like The Craft and shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer which were to my mind all about young women stepping into their power and having to negotiate their power and use their power to defend themselves often against abusers mm -hmm. right so yes what's happening today I think there's a lot of framing by the media that it's like new and it's this incredible trend or whatever and I do like to give a little bit of historical context because I think whenever women and I'll include also people of color and queer people anyone who's outside or marginal whenever they are feeling like they're trying to look for their voice and trying to look for some kind of icon they relate to or want to embody as an alternative to the cis white heteronormative patriarchy the witch is the perfect symbol for that and and a great figure to embody whether spiritually or politically so uh, that I so beautifully said. It's interesting. I actually was sitting across across from where where you're sitting right now was uh, a contemporary of yours, Kristen Soleil. Oh, I love her. Love She's her. a dear Amazing. friend. Amazing. And I asked her, and it was it's. Uh, I think it's an interesting question: is is the concept of which a construct of the patriarchy? And if not, how does it differentiate? You know, how do we differentiate which as something that is in opposition to the institution versus just a powerful woman who is independent from the institutions itself? I know. And it's a real trick, right? Yeah. Because there have certainly been witches, and I'll include under that wide umbrella, seers and shamans and, you know, healers and um, people who are engaging in some kind of plant magic 
Like, I mean, we've had all of these magical type people of all genders in every culture throughout history. But I do think that the word witch and the archetype of the witch as, I'll call her a she, as she's evolved um, since the times, let's say, of the 15th century and beyond with the witch hunts that happened in Europe and later the New England colonies, that really did crystallize in the collective imagination what a witch is. And it really did associate the witch with A, usually being a woman, and B, being diabolical and satanic and yes a real threat to the church and a threat to what was considered you know normal and proper and polite for a woman to be in society at the time and so today's witches I think are going to inevitably be a response to that Um, even as we evolve the archetype to be more and more positive I do think there's always gonna be this frisson of rebelliousness against which as a political term that's exactly right exactly right and that excites me but I know it also complicates the conversation around it because there are so many witches I know who are just positive lovely compassionate people they're like "Ugh, why do we have to keep talking about you know witches as evil why do we have to start the conversation with I'm not evil I don't do curses (laughs) I don't worship the devil like why do we have to define ourselves by what we're not and it's like I get frustrated with that too but on the other hand there's just a historical context that I think would be dishonest not to address when we're delving into this archetype and how we've gotten to this moment in time. Right. I think that the irony also of Trump, who I don't even like to just say his name, but here it is just for ease of this podcast and clarity, referring to um, pushback (laughs) of his administration as a witch hunt. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting that he's specifically using that language also, at a moment where witches are becoming more um, part of the mainstream in the zeitgeist, and you know, the New York Times is just like so horny for talking about witch culture <laughs> right now, for instance, and it's it's fascinating that those are sort of pressed up against each other, but also. You know, it's he's obviously not referring to himself as a witch, right? He's not saying it's a witch hunt because I am the one who is being who is this magical creature who's mm-hmm. being persecuted. Mm-hmm. He's he's aligning himself of he's seeing himself as the victim of this circumstance, right? Exactly. So it's kind of it's it's interesting because the witch sort of lives separately from the witch hunt. Yeah, I think that's true. And let's just remind ourselves and our listeners that, well, this is just my opinion, but the president is not a very well-read or well-informed person. Yeah, I think that's just a fact. (laughs) I mean, right? (laughs) And so, you know, for him to be invoking this phrase and let's let's also be clear he's not the first person to use the phrase witch hunt like other people have certainly used it um you know throughout the 20th century absolutely and i think arthur miller's play the crucible right. and and using that as uh, using the witch hunts as a metaphor for what was happening With during the mccarthyism red, yeah, the red scare. Yeah, yeah so like th- this has been in the zeitgeist for sure but trump has absolutely used it more than any other president perhaps more than any other public figure um, so much so that there's a Twitter account called witch hunt tweets that tabulates every time he tweets using the word witch hunt because it's gotten so out of control 
which frankly was very useful for me when I was researching uh, that this section of my book where I write about him using the term witch hunt because I didn't have to count it all myself. I could just <laughs> go to this Twitter account. But it is ironic that he is using this phrase because as we know, the victims of witch hunts were most often women. They were most often women over 40. They either had land that people wanted and because they were widows, you know, that was one way to get their land. Or they were what we might define as mentally unstable by today's standards. Or they had not enough children or no children. Like there was something about them that made them... too many children. (laughs) That that was like an aberration from what a, you know, normal, well-behaved, well-mannered woman was. And, you know, I've often come to think of them as inconvenient women because some of these women were just accused because, you know, people didn't like them. They were annoying. (laughs) They were, uh, you know, um, there was some kind of fight or feud that they might have had with their neighbors about like cows or crops or whatever it was. Right. And it ultimately land is a huge component of the the European and American colonial witch hunts of the, you know, what we imagine with the crucible in the 15th century, 16th century, because it was often women who had inherited land and were all, were defending it in the same way that a man would be defending his property and land, but women, when they were uh, acting autonomously, when they were acting without having a, a patriarchy over their head, were accused of then cursing their neighbors. (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly right. So, you know, all of this to say that for him to be using that phrase is, you know, it's just ridiculous. Um, But, you know, it doesn't offend me. I get asked a lot, does it offend you that he... No, it doesn't. He's not... Because he's a dumbass. Exactly. He's a fool. (laughs) And he doesn't... I don't think he even knows this history very well. I don't think he thinks of himself as a witch. I think it's just a a phrase that he's latched onto in his Tourette's style. Although, no offense to anyone who has Tourette's. But, you know, he just can't control himself. Um, And I just think that... I would rather people discuss his abhorrent policies and the vulnerable people that he's hurting or that his administration is hurting every day on a daily basis. Like that's more concerning to me than whether or not he's using the word witch or witch hunt wrong. Mm -hmm. I I think that there's something to be said about um, this moment in time being sort of a pressure cooker of you know, from an astrological perspective, we're looking at 2020. From a sociopolitical perspective, we're looking at 2020. There's a lot that has been sort of building. And I think as we are in our final days of 2019, which is crazy, it's like we're starting to actually feel the tension in a very palpable way. So it's almost like, you know, to use some witch imagery, it's like a cauldron that's overflowing right now, where it's like, you know, the more that he throws in these like, I mean, they're basically like porn headlines the way that he tweets. He tweets as if it's like it, it's like in just buzzy words. Clickbait. Right, clickbait. Exactly. I might as well be on like Pornhub <laughs> reading his Twitter. <laughs> and it's like he's throwing that in. All of us who are, you know, as one of my uh, previous guests, Mitch Horowitz said, the left-hand path people, we're throwing in our shit and it's all bubbling up. And what is going to sort of how it 
is what stew we're making, I think, is really TBD. Like we're trying to figure out how all of this is going to come together and converge into hopefully something positive, right? Where we can continue to fight the patriarchy, but maybe we're not fighting the patriarchy at in its horrible state that it is currently, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we're doing too by legitimizing and affirming um, witchcraft as a path that it has value and meaning and truth and beauty and is every bit as legitimate as any other spiritual path. I think we are honoring the feminine experience because I think those of us who gravitate towards witchcraft, whether for political reasons or spiritual reasons, and in my case, it's both, um, you know, it's because so many of our systems still centralize a male perspective, a straight male, cis, white, heteronormative perspective, certainly. And so I think what's happening is even for those of those of, of your listeners who might practice witchcraft, but they don't see themselves as political, they're still being political right. by even honoring the goddess or honoring the cycles of the seasons or their bodies or, you know, taking power into their own hands as opposed to just sitting back and trusting all of these systems that are, to use a, a hot button phrase, rigged against them because they don't value, you know, the feminine experience. They don't value the collective experience. They don't value the environment the way witchcraft really does. Um, that said, I love that people are also using the witch as a political figure. And if witchcraft can fortify you on an individual level and strengthen you, I think that's great. But I always ask people, like, what are you going to do with that power now? How right. are you going to use it to fight for other people? How are you going to use it to lift other people up or embolden? in yourself to raise your voice or cast your vote um, or march in the streets with your witchy hex of the patriarchy sign, whatever it is you're doing. Um, I think it all matters. It all has value. And it all is a stance against all of the messages we get from this administration. And let's be honest, other businesses and other religious organizations that tell us that we don't matter. Right. How, when you first um, started working with witchcraft, was, were you conscious of this in the, in your early days? Or was this also an evolution of thought as you continued to explore the history of, of the craft and the history of this practice? Oh, I think it was definitely an evolution because when I first was attracted to magic, uh, which I can't even remember a time I wasn't, I was doing intuitive magic as a kid and I was reading about mythology and fairy tales and the occult ever since I was really tiny. But once I started actively reading spell books and trying to do my own spells, you know, it was about what other teen witches were concerned with, right? It was about like, you know, trying to make boys I liked fall in love with me or doing really well on a test. I was not as concerned with like politics or, um, you know, trying to make a big difference in the world. I was, you know, in my own myopic teen space. That said, I think there was something in me that has always been rebellious and always had a strong sense of self and agency. And so I was attracted to things that made me feel empowered and that made me feel 
welcome as a weirdo because totally. I was a weird kid. I'm, I'm still a weird kid, you know? Um, and so the fact that there was this path that felt so magical and beautiful and personal and allowed me to trust myself and my voice and my intuition, I think was feminist without me necessarily having that language back then. But certainly the older I got and the more just um, aware and well-read I got about politics and the history of feminism and, and all of the things, um, then the more political my witchcraft has become too. So how did, um, have you always been, I, well, I guess this is a twofold question. One is sort of what are your thoughts on the monetization of witchcraft, right? And then the other is how did this become something that you were able to build as a career? Yes. I have very complicated feelings about the monetization of witchcraft. Um, you know, the best case scenario for me is, look, people who have gifts and knowledge and craftsmanship deserve to get paid no matter what vocation they're in. Um, I don't care if you're a priest or a lawyer, you deserve to get paid for your work. So people who are witches who are working with integrity and experience and respect for the craft great you know have a tarot business like sell your magical jewelry that's fabulous and I really really support it on the other hand there can be pitfalls as we know and you know one of them is certainly cultural appropriation which runs rampant in the witchcraft community you know you have a lot of really well-meaning mostly Caucasian uh, witches who are borrowing, whether they are aware of it or not, from other traditions, and then also putting a price tag on that. And that is just, um, I, it's it's not something that I support or am comfortable with. And we're having a lot of good conversations around that. And some of it is done with complete ignorance. They don't realize they're doing it. But as soon as I think people are made aware, then they have a responsibility to change that. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's one thing. And of course, as with any vocation, witchcraft or otherwise, you have people who are into something for like three weeks and then they decide, <laughs> oh, I'm an expert in this and they call themselves an expert. And because there's no real vetting process or certification to be a witch, you certainly do get people who first they were a life coach and now they're a witch life coach or, you know, they're, they're just using the word to make money because it's trendy or even, even they might feel a kinship with that word. And Look, there's no hard and fast rule, but I do think that people need to put in the time and the experience before they call themselves an expert in any vocation, Absolutely. witchcraft included. Yeah. So how uh, when you so let's so you were casting spells on your crushes. I was also reading horoscopes about my crushes. Yes. That's a perfect that's a perfect gateway into any sort of well, I guess practical uh, spirituality, because like you, I also was a very weird kid who was trying to always do the Ouija board at sleepovers. Yep. And like, yes. I was like, open that closet door. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> I was the one who was seeing ghosts. You know, it's mm. I guess I who knows whether I was just trying to like rally the troops or if I was really seeing them at these moments in time. But I was always like that kid. Right. And as, as you said, I am still that kid now. Yes. 
So that was like my first um, foray into it. And then in my teen years is when I started to try to use it to try to like get people to have crushes on me or to get into the college I wanted to get into. Mm-hmm. I fucking did. Hell so yeah. yeah. <laughs> Done that. <laughs> um, but I, I, I guess, you know, at what point, but then I didn't realize that I could use my intuition or my interest in occultism or astrology to make a career and become a professional. Mm-hmm. Ha- was there a time when you were just being a muggle oh, <laughs> or like front facing as yes, a muggle? Yes. Um, so my and and of course, this was your second part of your twofold question. How, how did this happen that I am, you know, I don't know, people have described me as a professional witch. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Um, other than to say, like, I am currently supporting myself doing this work. So for 14 years, I had a career in corporate America. I was working for a company called Getty Images, which is a very creative corporate company, but a corporate company nonetheless. I was sitting in a cubicle every day. And for those who aren't familiar with Getty Images, it's one of the biggest media companies out there. It's primarily a photography company. They do both photojournalism and stock photography. And I was working on the stock photography side. And I worked there for long enough that by the you know the last four years of my tenure there, I was a director. I also had a very public facing um, part of my job, representing the company and talking to media about certain projects that I was working on and speaking at conferences. And you know it was all very professional. I think what worked. Um, you know, in my advantage with that is because it was a creative company, I could still dress very much like myself. And I've always been an artistic person and dress, you know, witchy, I suppose you would say, or creatively anyhow. So I didn't feel like I had to like wear a different uniform or something like that. But as with, I think, a lot of people who have day jobs, you know, there were just certain conversations I wasn't having with my coworkers. In the same way, like, I wouldn't ask them, do you believe in God? Do you go to church? <laughs> like, we had an HR department, right? right? So, like, my spiritual life was private um, because in corporate America, I think it, it just often is anyhow. But those who worked in my department, in the creative department, especially those I was friends with, learned very quickly that I was very interested in the occult. Um, On the side, I was writing, I was blogging, I was running an arts and events space, I was curating art shows, I was teaching classes, all in the space of magic and witchcraft. So they definitely knew that I was interested in it. And as I was growing more confident in my magic and my identity as a witch, I started to like celebrate the pagan holidays at work in subtle ways. So when it was Beltane, I would buy a big, beautiful bouquet and sometimes I would bring wine and I would share it with people. And if they like wanted to know what the deal was, I would say it's Beltane, you know, (laughs) like and I would explain a little bit so they knew I was pagan, but I didn't go into super duper detail. Um, that said, there were some people I got really close with who became my friends and they started coming to my classes or my events or my art shows. And I think if you're paying close enough attention or if you were paying close enough attention, you would be like, oh, she really believes this stuff. It's not just her hobby. 
So I think I was very blessed in that I had this creative environment that I got to work in. Nonetheless, there was a breaking point for me a couple years ago while I was still at Getty when the demands on my time for my day job were just growing and growing and the demands on my time for my witch work, let's call it, were growing and growing. And for a long time, they were feeding each other and enhancing each other. And then they just started kind of pulling me in two different directions. And I had to make a choice. I was I started getting sick. I started feeling run down. I had all kinds of physical problems that manifested, probably because I was really run down, but also I think because spiritually my body was giving me a message. Right. Like and um, you know, bless my beautiful husband who's also creative and had and still has a day job. He he's a playwright, but he has a day job. We had some real conversations where I was like I think I want to try making this leap and doing my work full time. I felt like I had this book in me. I felt like I wanted to start a podcast, but I just didn't have the full time and energy to do it. And bless him a thousand infinite times over for him being like, let's do this. Let's figure this out. And it meant we had to reconstruct our income in a pretty major way you know and I try to be really candid about this like going from a corporate job where you're a director and then turning into a full-time author and podcaster like at this point in my life there's an income discrepancy there and I'm working really hard to figure out how to get back to that you know salary and hey let's try to manifest more right no shame in that Um, but that was a sacrifice that we made And I'm so grateful that we made it. And I'm so grateful that he's still like, we have our health insurance through him. Like he's still holding down his day job. And I was given the time and space that I needed to write my book and start my podcast. And um, the stars have aligned and things have started to take flight, which I'm so grateful for. But it definitely felt like a big, scary risk to take, but one that I knew I would regret forever if I didn't take it. I'm, I'm so grateful that you shared that story with us because I think that there is all of, you know, I wouldn't even say it's a misconception, but, you know, we're not all every post, every tweet, every public facing message isn't the story of how something came to be Mm -hmm. right and all of the trials and tribulations that come with it but it's it I think that in order to normalize what the process of taking on a uh, an alternative career path mean it's really important to talk about and you know it's I think that if we don't talk about it, it's easy to assume that everybody who is working as an astrologer or a witch uh, comes from a trust fund. Exactly. And that they just are set and that's that, you know? I mean, I would assume that. Mm. I, I know that from the position of me a few years ago who um, was working as an assistant at a hedge fund to make ends meet, and it was already after I had had a business and it was like literally the biggest fall from grace, you know, mm. I, but I had to pay bills. Yes. It, it didn't feel at all like it was accessible for me to be successful as a creative person that in order for me to have money, I had to reduce myself to things that I didn't truly believe in my heart. Mm-hmm. I knew that I, that wasn't what I 
I, you know, I, I would, I hated coming into work. I've always hated coming into being working in an office. It's never like suited me. I've always gotten in trouble for what I wear. Mm. I always am getting talked to by HR mm. every time I would work in some sort of a corporate environment. Yeah, I was in trouble. Yeah. Even actually, when I worked in the art world, I was getting in trouble with, with my art gallery for what I was wearing. Really? Yes. That surprises me. They didn't like the Adidas look I was trying to do at the time. I, oh. I, I, actually, I actually don't blame them for it. it well, <laughs> I think there's a way to rock that out, but fair I, enough. They, well, I was also miserable, so I started wearing these horrible Adidas slides to work every day, <laughs> and I and my boss was like, you are trying to sell art. And I was like, they're cool right now, and he was like, this isn't fucking Urban Outfitters. Like, <laughs> I will never, I'll never forget That's what cold. That I know. But I mean, I, for me, I was like, uh, felt like a failure all the time throughout my 20s because I kept getting fired or having to quit jobs because I knew that they weren't right but I also had no idea what to do with myself because I didn't fit into any of the um the options that I thought were available yeah yeah that's so interesting because I had the opposite which was like I was fitting in really well and on paper it looked like I, I, you know, you brought up the New York Times before I was in the New York Times for the work I was doing at Getty Images. And I was working on projects that I believed in, you know, it was stock photography, which was not my dream come true. But in that um, context, I was working on projects about like using the power of images to um, help break gender stereotypes and show more empowered images of dynamic women. And, and so it meant something to me and it didn't feel like I was selling my soul. I liked the people I worked with. I could be myself and I was doing really well and frankly getting compensated really well. But um, I also, it just like when I'm really honest with myself, it's like this isn't what I was born to do. I'm grateful that I did it. And frankly, a lot of the people I met along my journey at Getty Images are now people I'm working with in the capacity, in my capacity as a witch right now, um, because I just made great relationships. And yeah, so, so, but it still felt like uh, probably not dissimilar to how you were feeling when I knew it was time. I just knew I was depressed. I was anxious. I was crying all the time. I, like I said, I had all these physical ailments. Just, I knew that it wasn't healthy for me anymore, that I had outgrown it and that there were other things that I was put on this earth to do. And in that way, it was a different kind of um, break because I was giving up security and because I'm a very, you know, I can be a little type A. I like to plan. I like to make sure I have savings if possible. Um, health insurance. Like I haven't been super risky in terms of all of my basic needs the way I think a lot of entrepreneurs and artists are. I'm being more risky now than I've than I was, you know, for most of my working life up until this point. And that's been a real change for me, like, to talk candidly about money, to to not know what my income's going to be like, to not know what my next project is going to be, like, is really helping me grow. But it's also, I have growing pains around it because it makes me anxious sometimes. And I just keep coming back to, this is the work I'm meant to do. 
And certainly I have to show up for it and figure it out and do lots of magic around it, but also do lots of homework around it. Um, But also trust and surrender that spirit is guiding me right now. And it feels great and right and scary and exciting. Yes. I, I, I mean, I, from the outside looking in, of course, it, you know, everything that you're doing, the work that you are contributing, um, not just for this moment in time, but for the history, you know, for people in generations to come being able to look back. I think that, you know, I, we, I was thinking the other day, like, what's the difference between history and mythology, right? Because one feels very um, scientific, one feels very qualified, and then the other is like folklore. But ultimately, they are the same thing, right? It's, you know, history becomes mythology, and mythology is history. Yeah. And the work that we put into the canon of, you know, this is what we're looking at in this time and place. This was our perspective. This is our voice is essential, not just for readers of today, but it's going to be essential for readers of many, many years to come. Because if we don't have new perspectives and if we're not reworking the way that we see the world and that we're sort of reanalyzing and reframing the past, then we're stuck in just, you know, whatever the legacy was of the people who were just like old white men. Exactly. (laughs) Especially when it comes to thinking of what the canon is, what's the canon of literature, what's the canon of history, what's the canon of fine art. I think we're living in an exciting time when the canon is being rewritten across all these different spectrums. And um, I think witchcraft is an important part of evolving all of that. Right. I mean, I I think about the 70s a lot. It's one of my favorite decades. there was a lot of great, you know, in the late 60s and through the 70s, there was obviously a a massive occult revival mm-hmm. and a lot of astrology language and the vernacular. We still think of it as so, or until recently, it was so embedded in that like groovy time. Yes. And the same was applying to witchcraft. There are all of those like pulp paperback books that were being produced in like you know mass printed hell yeah i owned a lot of them in the 80s they were really sexy right it was like but then if you now if we look back all of these you know 30 40 i guess yeah 40 plus years later we're starting to realize like hmm, a lot of these books were written by men and a lot of these individuals anton lavey was actually like very much sexualizing the idea of witchcraft and it actually was kind of exploitative you know and even astrology was being used in these more exploitative ways where it Mm. was more reductive Mm. um and it was more of like you know how do you seduce you know these witches are seducing men but like who at the end of the day is writing them the men who want to be seduced by the women right right so with now perspective we can look back and say okay who really was working at that moment you know Mm -hmm. and how did that iconography how did that literature inform the 90s revival informing today 2019 2020 um but we wouldn't we always need the hindsight, you know, we need the vision to look back and to understand it in order to make sense of it in its totality. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so excited that a lot of witches today, modern witches, are going back and and trying to figure out who our foremothers and forefathers were. Yeah. Because, for example, a lot of people talk about Gerald Gardner as the father of Wicca. 
absolutely he deserves a lot of credit. He was very problematic in my opinion too. Um, but his high priestess was Doreen Valiente and it was she who really adapted like the charge of the goddess and all of the incredible, beautiful goddess related imagery and spells and rituals that came out of Wicca. And then there were in the seventies, people like Starhawk who wrote the spiral dance, who, um, you know, through the reclaiming movement had much more goddess and feminist focused witchcraft and she's still rocking and rolling today they just had their 40 year anniversary of the spiral dance in san francisco a couple weeks ago and so I think it's wonderful to go back and do the digging and, you know, certainly look at who was in the spotlight back then, but who was doing other alternative work. work. Yes. And that's not to say that there isn't also some value in problematic faves. And I think we're also learning how to pick and choose, like, who do you keep despite the fact that they were problematic and who do you just like throw out, (laughs) you know? It's so complicated. Yeah. I am... um, you know, I feel like this could almost be a conversation, an entire, it is an entire conversation separately from this episode, but the question of how do you reconcile knowing that some of these legacy people have also done very bad things mm-hmm. or wrote some really shitty, weird stuff that definitely would raise an eyebrow today and should raise an eyebrow, you yeah. know? Alistair Crowley, right? Mm-hmm. Someone who did amazing work a prolific prolific occultist who was very creepy too right and also (laughs) like wrote some very questionable things um had some very questionable viewpoints hung out with some very questionable people yeah you know him and l ron hubbard were like besties Mm. um that's problematic but do we then take all of that work that he created and and just dismiss it. Right. We can't. Right, right. I think we're doing the same thing across all culture, though, aren't we? We're doing that with our comedians and our artists and our politicians and everybody. And I don't have a crisp answer for you, but I will say... Um, you know, it's going to it's going to come down to the individual, of course, like the more I read about someone like Gerald Gardner, for example, this is a man who was very into nudism or as he called it, naturism. He was very into tying people up and being tied up. And there's nothing wrong with either of those things. I'm very sex positive. But let's be honest, like that was definitely also his own interests, if not right. kinks, right, that he was involving in what some people think of as this sacred tradition of Wicca, I'm not sure that, you know, people were actually tying themselves up, you know, in the 15th century or earlier. I think it might have just been something he liked. Right, right. And, you know, again, nothing wrong with that. But I think we treat a lot of this stuff as if it is the gospel and the people who created it or invented it or evolved it as like total sacred, perfect people. And it's like, no, there's there's some of this stuff that's I mean, all of it is invented by humans, in my opinion. It might be inspired or coming from spirit. But I think that we all have the opportunity to evolve spirituality forward and to co-create it and to personalize it. So if there's aspects of a Wicca, for example, that aren't comfortable for you, 
guess what? You're allowed to evolve it and change it or, you know, toss out the parts that don't feel comfortable for you if, if some of those elements are triggering for you, right? Um, so yeah, I, I think it, it certainly depends on the person we're talking about. And that, that's a very blanket or dull answer for dull, I mean, by, you know, like not a sharp answer. Um, but it's the best one I can come up with. Because I think people are problematic in general. And I bet you there's stuff going on right now that in 20, 30 years, people are going to be like, I can't believe they were doing that, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And I I think that where we sort of mark ourselves in time at this moment, I mean, I, I feel like through the process of um, myself having this podcast, it's just history is just, I it feels so important to make sure that we are talking about and that we are putting things in perspective constantly. Because if we weren't putting, for instance, colonials, colonialization in respect to the way that people have borrowed um, different traditions of cultures that weren't their own, like y- we need to talk about all of these things holistically as they relate to the past and to the present and then hopefully the future. Like something just in a silo can't really exist. You can't get the full, you know, someone who's just coming and like, you know, going into their suburban mystical shop and picking up white sage. If if someone slapped their hand and was like, you can't do that, they'd be like, why? Mm-hmm. What's the problem, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And again, as you had said earlier, you know, there is like an innocence to it, but we need to have the context. We need to know the history in order for us to see what's working and what isn't working. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why I'm so glad that podcasting, especially as a medium, is here because you know, I don't think either you or me knows everything, but we have the opportunity to speak to other experts and learn from them. And, and that's why, you know, for me on the witch wave, like, it's very important to me that I don't just have white, straight ladies on the podcast. And I'll be candid. It makes my job a little harder because there are a lot of straight white ladies that I could interview all day long who are brilliant and wonderful. But I work really hard to make sure that I have people from all different Um, gender identities and all different backgrounds to talk about their experience with witchcraft and their cultural context because I'm learning from them too and I'm trying to evolve and get better and I'm hoping that my listeners are learning and evolving their behavior along with me. So I think that that's a perfect segue to where we can find you and how we can get more of this conversation. Um, Where can we find you? Yes. (laughs) The easiest is my website, pamgrossman.com, and that will lead you to all my other things. But certainly the Witch Wave podcast, um, you can find it everywhere now. And that is witchwavepodcast.com. And, you know, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff. It's easiest if you just look up my name. My handle is actually Phantasmophile, which is quite a mouthful um, from a, a blog that I started a million years ago and still occasionally uh, post. But yeah, just look me up. I'm very, very easy to find and I would love to engage with you. Yay, absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. It's so lovely to talk to you and we'll have to have you back on soon to expand on all of these conversations. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Elisa. Thank you.